Welcome to Louisiana Considered. I'm Adam Voss. Just ahead today, Grammy Award-winning saxophonist Branford Marsalis is returning to New Orleans to take over as the Artistic Director for the Ellis Marsalis Center for Music in the city's Ninth Ward. We'll talk with him about his vision. Also, we'll talk with one of the people behind a creative workshop in Baton Rouge that encourages senior citizens to start writing their own stories. But first, Mardi Gras season is in full swing, but parades and balls aren't always accessible to everyone, especially those with disabilities and for the elderly. Thankfully, at St. Margaret's at Mercy Nursing Home in New Orleans, if you can't go to the Mardi Gras, they will bring the Mardi Gras to you. Louisiana Considered producer Alana Schreiber attended the home's annual Mardi Gras. Today, we're going to take a listen. On the Friday before Fat Tuesday, St. Margaret's at Mercy is decked out for a Mardi Gras ball. The nursing facility is complete with carnival balloons, king cake, and the residents are donning their best throws. For many of them, coming to this ball brings back childhood memories. Oh yeah, I like Mardi Gras. My mother used to love Mardi Gras. She would come to the city and she would cook food for everybody. (laughs) All I remember is how much stuff I can get. My heavens, it's so long ago, I don't even hardly remember. I guess the parades and the king. Seeing all of the beautiful floats and people enjoying being together, sharing Mardi Gras. That was Augustine Luba, Joyce Fashon, Audrey Flynn, and finally, Charlene Gazzoni Chapetta. But today, Charlene's not just any resident. She's also the queen of the ball. I am so happy, and this was such a surprise to me. I tell you, I haven't been to parades since my children grow have grown up. But uh, we used to make all of the parades, every one of them. But Charlene isn't alone at the royalty table. She's joined by Earl Phillips, a former musician and today's king. Uh, it's awesome. It's beautiful. And, um, the queen is beautiful. And um... we are very good friends. I, I can't tell you how happy. It made me to know that all of these employees voted me as queen because I love all of them here. That's right. It was the employees of St. Margaret's who elected Charlene and Earl to today's throne. Towards the back of the crowd is Audrey Flynn, one of the newer residents. At age 101, she's the only one in sight not using a wheelchair. You know, recently, I gave up working at City Hall. I worked for the mayor of New Orleans, so I saw a lot of Mardi Gras. And I lived right on the parade route uptown, so I could just walk from my home to the parade. Audrey is still adjusting to life at St. Margaret's. So for her, today's ball is a taste of something familiar. It's a nice surprise for me. This is my first time here. And they said we were having a little Mardi Gras celebration, but I didn't think it would be as large as this and as much fun. About an hour after the festivities begin, a Zulu king arrives to deliver throws. One of the recipients of some new Zulu beads was Joyce Fashon. When I asked the New Orleans native about her favorite moments from Mardi Gras past, she had one memory that stuck out in particular. Listening in from my great uncle in the band he was in, he'd tell us as kids, you listen for me, and I'm going to roll the drums for you. (laughs) 
Joyce says she sort of gave up Mardi Gras as she got older. So today's ball reminds her of why she loved it as a kid. I think everybody just forgets their burdens or their problems for a day, you know, and get out and enjoy themselves, you know. And while the residents wave their new beads and finish their king cake, activities director Nicole Adams is beaming in the corner. Because for her, the best part of the ball is just watching. Seeing the smiles on the residents' faces, watching them enjoy themselves and have a good time, it means a lot. They will tell you, they enjoy it. it it's like home for them. This is, this is what home was. This is what they grew up with. This is what they, they know. Because for many of these residents who no longer live at their homes, Mardi Gras is home. But like most members of older generations, they've also got plenty of advice for young people on how to have a good time this carnival season. Don't get into trouble. Be careful. Watch where you're going. Don't drink too much. That's it. In New Orleans, I'm Alana Schreiber. From WRKF in Baton Rouge and WWNO in New Orleans, this is Louisiana Considered. I'm Adam Voss. The Ellis Marcellus Center for Music recently announced that renowned saxophonist Branford Marcellus will take the role of artistic director there. This is a homecoming for the musician, composer, and educator who was a member of the famed musical Marcellus family. And here to tell us more about what he envisions for the center and his father's continuing legacy is Branford Marcellus. Thank you so much for being here. Thanks, Adam. Appreciate it. So could you start just by telling us about your childhood, what your childhood looked like growing up with music in New Orleans? How big of a role music played in your upbringing? What did that look like? Um, well, it, it didn't look like anything to me at the time because uh one of the things I like to tell my students to understand how to play music better in an emotional sense is that uh, however you grow up, I mean, that's your worldview. That's your reality. And until there is a additional data that you can discover through conversations or going to college or traveling. So, I mean, before smartphones, we didn't know anything about New York or Boston. So when I was flying to Boston in 1979, some of the questions in my head are kind of like, you know, I wonder what their brass band sound like. Uh, I wonder if they have gumbo because we just didn't know anything about. We couldn't just go on Google and look up what the world was like on the other, or even the country, our own country on the other side. So the way I grew up is the way I thought everybody grew up. I didn't find it to be really unique or special until I left. You grew up in a musical family. Music is just the sound of the air, for instance. Well, I grew up in a musical city. You know, there's always like another version of the Von Trapp family. And that just wasn't how we grew up. But when you grow up in a city where kids sing two-way parking way waiting for the bus in the morning and we're clanking pencils off the fence or brass bands could break out at any second, you get used to certain realities. You get used to certain sounds in the air that had my family been born in another place. I don't know if we would all be musicians to the degree that we are. I mean, none of my kids played music at all, and they didn't grow up in New Orleans. So I think that has something to do. You're telling me about a role that New Orleans played in this and some of the unique 
character of New Orleans and that it might have had that effect on you. Absolutely. I went to youth orchestra on a Saturday, and then at one o'clock, we were going to have uh, trad band lessons with Danny Barker in the Fairview Baptist Church brass band. And very few people in the country can have an experience like that. Nobody other than, than us can have an experience like that. Hmm. Now let's fast forward to the Ellis Marcellus Center. Can you tell me about the founding of the center? From what I understand, it's a bit of a post-Katrina brainchild. What were the early goals there? The idea of, a, of, of any kind of school was, was actually Harry's idea. We were driving to uh, Houston. Uh, we fought away into New Orleans and checked on our family's homes and all that. And Harry said, we should go to Houston and we should play for the evacuees in the Astrodome. And on that six-hour trip, all sorts of stuff came up. And one of the things, Harry says, we should start school. And I'm like, schools are not really practical, but we need to do something. And then Harry had already been building houses with Habitat for Humanity prior to Katrina. So he just said, well, I have a relationship with that Habitat. You know, maybe we could build some houses, help out some musicians. And I'm like, no, that's a great idea. So we went to Houston, uh, stayed in Astrodome almost till the sun came up. And then I caught a 6 a.m. flight back to Durham, North Carolina, where I was living. And by the time the plane touched down, my manager was calling and saying, okay, we talked to Habitat, got this plan. You got to go back to New Orleans next week. We got to start building houses. Hmm. Could you tell us a little bit more about some of the things that you feel like are the, the biggest accomplishments of the Ellis Marcellus Center since its founding? I think the biggest accomplishment, uh, we have a lot of kids in our city whose parent or parents work to make ends meet, where both parents are working, or there's a single parent house. So we have a lot of latchkey kids. The glaring exception to that is sports. A lot of kids play sports in their after-school program. Sometimes it's a math class or a science class. When I was a kid, it used to be marching band. We would be in the marching band until 5 o'clock, 5.30 in the afternoon. And these days, I mean, a lot of the band programs have been cut severely. So the the young people can't use music as an outlet to the degree that we did when we were younger. So it's not really about creating musicians, because if you're destined to be a musician, you're pretty much going to be one. And you, you follow your own path. You don't need a school to turn you into a musician. But I think that using music as a mechanism to enhance education, to give the kids somewhere to go to and feel safe and we have all sorts of services, uh, psychologists, if the students feel they need another parent, uh, business of music classes, music instruction, dance instruction. The center is an all-encompassing sort of musical community center, which I think is, is way more important than a school of music. This is Louisiana Considered. We're speaking with musician and composer Branford Marsalis about his new role as Artistic Director of the Ellis Marcellus Center for Music in New Orleans. So from what I understand, it's not just music lessons. It's also opportunities like computer coding and sound engineering and other sorts of behind-the-scenes roles that are taught at the center. Can you tell us a little bit more about the lessons learned from that wider variety of disciplines? It's not just music. I just think that there are a lot of kids who thrive when there's something for them to do. And I mean, 15, 16 year old kids aren't really sure they want to be audio engineers. Some of them do, most of them don't. But when I look back on all of the, the various things that I did in my young childhood, I think all of those experiences are central to my development as a musician. I think going to the center and studying music or studying audio 
the amount of discipline that is involved, the, the amount of problem solved, the uh, you know master apprentice relationship, as it were, even if they choose to go to university and go in a different direction, all of the tools that exist at the center will help them in whatever endeavors that they, they choose to do in the future. So finally, tell me some of your personal goals as you step into this role. How do you want to expand upon the work the center has been doing for years now? I'm, I'm more of an outsider coming in, ironically. There's a lot of uh, instructors who are there on the ground every day. And what I'm going to do is uh, when I finally get back home, I'm going to just sit in on some classes and see what's happening. But there's a system that works. It does not need a dramatic overhaul to feed my own insecurities. Uh, there will be no massive amount of change. It'll be developed by all of the, the the people involved. It will not be an edict from on high. Yeah. So we know that growing up in a place like New Orleans, there's a whole lot of musical influence there, just being part of that city. But you also spent a lot of time outside of New Orleans since then. How do you plan to educate learners about not just the New Orleans styles of music, but also blend it with everything else there is available in the world for people to hear? Yeah, I'm not really interested in hybridized music per se. Uh, we just did a, a recording and a project with some Hungarian musicians. And I took a very different approach to a lot of my colleagues. Instead of taking some Hungarian folk tunes and Americanizing them with Western chord changes and turning them into vehicles for long solos, we just worked in conjunction with uh, six Hungarian musicians in the traditional setting and used what I would call our jazz sensibility to... Uh, add to what it was that they normally do. So it was more about us meeting them in their space as best we could, as opposed to just us showing up and Americanizing everything. So uh, in that situation, there's certain students who might be interested in those kinds of sounds. And we have a big enough library. I have a big enough library on my own to introduce them to those things. But I mean, hybridized music tends to serve no one, really. It's just this funny thing in the middle. Like if you Americanized Hungarian folk songs. Nobody in America knows those songs. And the Hungarians hate the Americanized version. So there's this kind of place in the middle where, you know, musicians and academics and intellectuals get together and say, man, that was really great. In a certain specific context, it might be great. But in a general context, it serves no one. What I would, you would like to do is encourage the musicians to listen to the music because it's beautiful music and deserves to be listened to. Don't listen with an agenda. Okay. Yeah, that's a answer I may not hear from every musician where it seems like there is a lot of temptation to do that hybrid music, that fusion of things. How do you do that listening? What kind of listening does it take to say, hey, I'm going to learn something from this style of music and I'm not going to try and change it? By listening. I mean, just the art of listening. Uh, it's hard to listen when you're listening for things. I think that's why people struggle with languages because what we try to do is take a language like Spanish or French and American techniques, we kind of Americanize it instead of just learning it as its own separate thing. And I feel music is best learned that way. Uh, if you're playing music that doesn't adhere strictly to the Western canon, then don't try to bring American systems. For instance, if you go on YouTube, there are these, uh, these guys from India who are tapping out these complex Indian rhythms and underneath it'll say four plus three plus six plus 11 plus 18 plus this plus that. And one of my students brought that to me and says, man, this is amazing. How do you think they do that? I said, they don't count it. They learn it from the time they're children. Yeah. 
the math part is for American audiences because that's not how they sort the music out. That's after the fact. And I think that that's one of the, the perfect examples of us not being able to accept things on its own terms. We have to take those things and put it through our own uh, cultural filters for it to make any sense. So that's one of those things that I would definitely try to disabuse students and other musicians of because it's not even reciprocal. It's just, it's, it's its own kind of category and it serves no, no purpose, no master really. Yeah, I think that's something that could definitely serve students learning what filters to not look at your education through. Absolutely, learn everything. Rafford Marcellus is a musician, composer, and is the new artistic director of the Ellis Marcellus Center for Music in New Orleans. Rafford Marcellus, thank you for your time today. Thank you, Adam. Appreciate it. This is Louisiana Considered. I'm Adam Voss. Everybody has a story to tell, but not everyone has the confidence, the training, or even the right words to tell it. That's where the Arts Council of Greater Baton Rouge steps in. Their creative writing workshop encourages storytellers, specifically those ages 55 and up, to put pen to paper in a creative writing workshop. And that workshop just published its first book, a collection of short stories from local writers. It's called Louisiana Short Stories, an anthology from America's most storied state. And Pam Bordelon is a participant editor and facilitator for this workshop. She joins us now for more. Thanks for being here. Thanks, Adam. Thanks for having us. First of all, what was the impetus for this workshop? What made somebody say they wanted to make this happen? Well, strangely enough, it came about when Renee Chatelaine, our CEO, who just recently hung up her spurs, uh, ran into a local author, Ronna Gray, walking down 3rd Street, and they struck up a conversation, and somehow it morphed into, wouldn't it be really cool if we could do a writer's workshop for you know the senior citizens of the world and... So Renee found a grant, and we did the first workshop, which was in spring of 22, and it's morphed from there. Tell me what this is. What do people do? They're people who are writing. They're local people. Tell me about it. Uh, pretty much everybody that took the first class, you know, you reach a certain age. You want to pass on your family stories to your grandchildren and the generations down. So a lot of the people that took that first class were people that wanted to write their memoirs. Uh, that was my impetus was I had a fabulous almost 30-year career of covering the social scene in Baton Rouge, and I have met people. And Mayor Kip Holden used to tease me that he says, you need to write all this down because you're going to forget. <laughs> so I want to write a story about that for my grandchildren and whoever may come behind me because it was, it was a heck of a ride. So that's kind of why I signed up. Just tell me, What's the basic outline of this program, this workshop? Who takes part? What are they encouraged to do? How do they start? Well, there is actually a creative aging nonprofit organization that works to keep senior citizens involved. To be able to stay engaged, it, it helps you mentally. It helps you physically. Uh, it keeps you on the top of your game. Uh, so it's, it's, it's important that you just don't go home and sit and wait to die. 
The workshop has published a collection of writings. This is your first thing that you've published. What kind of themes do your writers pursue? How do they capitalize on Louisiana being, as the title says, America's most storied state? Well, we, we decided that there are lots and lots of stories in Louisiana, and so we just decided to make ourselves the most storied state. <laughs> but when we decided to do a book, we wanted it to be short stories and have some kind of a Louisiana tie. So... We decided to make all of the short stories reflect the resiliency and culture of Louisiana. So you have a story about um, decorating a Christmas tree during COVID and passing down that tradition because it's full of memories. Uh, There is one about making gumbo with your mother on Christmas Eve. There's one about when the interstate was put through Scotlandville and divided it up in a traumatic event that happened when a young, a young child was killed trying to cross a road. So they all show you how people pick themselves up. And I think how Louisiana and Baton Rouge responded to the hurricanes, the floods, how people in this state come together and do that. And I think these stories reflect that. We're speaking with Pam Bordelon of the Arts Council of Greater Baton Rouge. We're talking about the Creative Aging Writers Workshop and its first published book, which just came out. It's available now. Um, What do the participants look like? Tell me, are there seasoned writers, inexperienced writers? Some people are communicators. Some people are writers and they know it. And some people really feel like, why would I write something I couldn't write something? (laughs) Does it take all types? How does that work? It does take all types. There are some people in the class who are self-published, but this was the first time for most everybody to be published. There are some who have uh, written primarily fiction, but we have, there are about three or four people who were social workers, you know, and then you've got me, the journalist, the communications director. There's Wild Iris, which is written by a beautiful lady who is just full of light and goodness. And she wrote this this beautiful story in, in, in its dark way. And she, she can really paint a picture with words. Going back to you now as a participant in this writer's workshop, coming from being a journalist, what was it that compelled you to write as a piece of creative writing? How did that relate to your experience writing about Baton Rouge? It kind of it kind of threw me out of my comfort zone. I, I'm I'm an oral storyteller, so things that have happened to me that I can kind of share a story, I'm pretty good at, and and telling other people's stories, I'm pretty good at. So uh, I'm an oral storyteller, which is why friends have been telling me save that for your book since I was 15 years old. And finally, what do the participants have to say about this workshop? What are their feelings when they successfully complete a piece of creative writing? What do they say? Well, I think by the fact that out of the 20 people that participated in writing the book, that participated in this final workshop has taken at least one of the other iterations of it speaks volumes. Rana is really good. She creates a Google group for the workshop participants, and we stay in touch. And if you write something, you throw it out there, and people comment, edit, make suggestions, and um, you get some really good feedback. Interesting. So you get a feedback group from other experienced writers who have gone through the same thing. Yeah. And it's kind of become a little family, which, you know, a lot of these people are older and maybe don't have children that live here anymore. So we've kind of created a somewhat of a little bubble. It's a little writer's bubble that we have. We kind of look out for each other. Hmm. Pam Bordelon is with the Arts Council of Greater Baton Rouge, which facilitates the Creative Aging Writers Workshop, which just published 
an anthology of stories. Tell me where you can read this. So you can order it on Amazon. All the proceeds will benefit the Arts Council and will probably go back into making sure we can continue to do creative aging ventures with this program. Pam Bordelon, thanks for being here. Thanks so much for having us. And that's Louisiana Considered on a Wednesday. A thank you to jazz and classical saxophonist, composer, band leader, educator, Ranford Barsalis, as well as Pam Borlan of the Arts Council of Greater Baton Rouge. Our managing producer is Alana Schreiber, and our assistant producer is Aubrey Purcell. Our engineer is Garrett Pittman. You can listen to Louisiana Considered Mondays through Fridays at 12 noon, 7 p.m. on this station. It's available at Google Play, uh, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Adam Voss. Thanks for listening. Major support for Louisiana Considered provided by Rouse's Markets, a Louisiana shopping experience, with additional support from Tulane School of Public Health.